Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice San Diego. I'm joined as always by managing editor Andrew Keats. What's up, pal? And fellow managing editor, co-managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Hello, Andrea. Hello, how's it going? Coming up on the show, San Diego Congressman Scott Peters has found himself in the national spotlight every day for the last couple of weeks as he tries to balance protecting pharmaceutical and biotech companies in San Diego and their work with his party's long push to let Medicare negotiate drug prices. We're going to explain exactly the situation he's in and why it's such a big deal. And the San Diego Association of Governments, SANDAG, is considering a sales tax again that could go before voters in 2022 that would alter how we think of and plan for transportation. They are back, Andy, after you destroyed them a few years ago. We'll talk about what's different and how it may work, right? For one, it's not really them this time around. Ah, there we go. And finally, a storm hit, as you know, on Monday. That often pushes homeless folks into shelters. But a city-funded shelter had a bunch of empty beds, even though police are supposed to be increasing access for people who need those beds. We're going to explain that as well. But first, you both, Andrea and Andy, have allowed me some space here to talk about something. So uh, for those of you out there, this is them being nice to me. And thus, hopefully, it's worth it for you. Yeah. It's, I've, we've, I have basically a minute to get through this, right? I've if been that, here for three weeks, and I think I've been nice to you the whole, the the whole time. time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the real interesting part is the Andy being nice to you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's Okay. All right. I want to talk about this bombshell story that was in ESPN. It was about the fall meeting of NFL owners. These are owners of NFL teams and a discussion they had about a lawsuit 
that St. Louis, the city of St. Louis, and I think a related entity in the city of St. Louis, has against the NFL and against the Rams in particular. Remember, the Rams used to be the St. Louis Rams. They moved to uh, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, San Diego Chargers moved to Los Angeles, and the Oakland Raiders moved to Las Vegas. Now, that decision happened in 2016, and it was a very interesting moment where the Rams wanted to move to Los Angeles. They had to make the case that they were going to uh, need to move to Los Angeles, that St. Louis wasn't providing them the option to stay there, and that the NFL rules they were they were following and everything was was kosher there, right? Now, all three of these teams had to make a deal with the NFL that if they got to move, that they would indemnify the other owners in the NFL world. They would say, we're not going to let them sue you. If they sue you, we will pay for your bills. You're okay, right? Correct. So there was three bits of news that came out of this story about this meeting of the NFL owners. One is that this lawsuit, St. Louis filed a lawsuit against the Rams because they say they broke the contract, that they misled them, all these things about the, uh, what they were supposed to do to try to keep the team were all lies, it was a fraud, all of these things happen, that that lawsuit has gotten to be so big, it is costing each of those NFL owners a tremendous amount of time and resources to deal with that Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams, has to pay for because of this agreement, right? And it's getting to be so serious that they had to have a meeting where they asked Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams, to leave so they could talk about the real situation. They talk about the real situation after he leaves, and it's so dire that a lot of them are just shocked about how bad this lawsuit is getting for them. That it, uh, that it is even said in there, this is the second bit of news, that they have offered St. Louis a settlement for as much as a billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it's like three team relocation fees, basically, right? right. Which, which was at one point considered like a major cost of, or, or a major uh, revenue bonus for all the other owners. Right. That one, one, whoever moved would have to pay them a bunch of money. Well, if the whole league ends up paying a billion dollars to St. Louis, like that stuff's gone. Yeah. Right. A, and a billion dollars is, is a stadium, like yeah. a really good one. Yeah. So a billion dollars. So now there's another source in the story that says, look, it's not that much. But it's still, as reported in the story, more than the net worth of some of the owners in the room. Mm-hmm. And they're wealthy people. Yeah. All right. So that was the second bit of news. The third bit of news is that part of the reason that St. Louis has been so successful in this effort is that they got an email from somebody who knew about the Chargers and, uh, and, and, and Raiders plan to move to Carson, to L.A. And that an email, they were fighting. Remember the Chargers wanted to move to L.A. and the Raiders wanted to move to L.A. and the Rams wanted to move to L.A. and they were all fighting for this, this opportunity. Yeah, this was all during the, uh, the farcical period where we were pretending that there was some sort of decision-making rubric that was not just based on who had the most money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a few months later, we realized that actually none of this maneuvering mattered at all. Stan Cranky was rich and had a bigger checkbook, mm-hmm. and that's why he got to do what he wanted and everything else worked from there. Exactly. But so, this, we were pretending that there were like rules and situate, you know, back back in that. Kind of like football itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so one of the things the Chargers especially tried to do 
was make it clear that Stan Kroenke couldn't move the Rams from St. Louis very easily because of the contracts they had in place, the rules they had in place, and that he hadn't proven that he needed to move as much as these other teams had. Mm -hmm. And so they sent, somebody from this group sent, whether the Chargers or Raiders, an email to St. Louis officials saying, here's what you should do. Here's your legal case for you. We've made it. If you want to sue the, the Rams. Yeah. Now, so theoretically, this letter could have come from the Raiders. Theoretically. Could have come from the Chargers. It could have come from, uh, who was the Disney guy who was part of that group at one point? Iger. Uh, yeah, Bob, Bob Iger, Iger was, was the, the figurehead. So it could have come from him, right? maybe. There are some context clues yeah. that indicate it came from the Chargers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One man specifically. <laughs> Almost certainly came from Mark Fabiani, their special counsel for many years, who is very good at long, thorough legal analysis in email form. Check out special podcast episode on the, from this show, the your extended interview with Mark Fabiani. Oh, yeah. That's long good time. content. Yeah, that's good, good content. So go ahead. It, what what is it? What is it about San Diego's maneuvering around this very sim- simple question that was at stake between St. Louis and the Rams? Right. What is it about the Chargers that makes us think they might have been involved in this? Well, they bitterly. Wanted this opportunity to move, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to sink the Rams. And they didn't succeed. They send this email. St. Louis uses this email, sues, and is just raking the NFL over the coals with this. Well, what I was referring to is that the Chargers, in their various agreements with the city of San Diego, right, had, let's say, protected themselves from... This very thing that C- yeah. St. Louis was able to prosecute right. against the Rams. The Chargers and their infinite brilliance, Andrea, you'll, <laughs> you'll appreciate that. That is the only flaw in this argument is that we're like suggesting that the, the Chargers like had, had thought three steps ahead I and had worked. I think they did. At, yeah. I really think they did. Yeah. In 2004, they made a new lease deal with the city about playing at Qualcomm Stadium. Remember that old place, right? They made a deal with the city that they would play there for a while. But in there, they insisted that the city sign a document that said, the city would never sue the Chargers or the NFL if the Chargers and the NFL moved in this sort of circumstance. St. Louis never did that. Yeah. The Chargers did do that. People of St. Louis, just be a little happy. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 guys, you guys lost the team, but like they didn't, they didn't get humiliated yeah, in so, the way that the Chargers over a series of – 20 years, just absolutely humiliated this poor city of ours. <laughs> just <laughs> destroyed the city constantly. Just, they got them to buy tickets. They got them to pay, they had paid no rent for a while. And then you they're know just what? Like, There's all these, these stories about how like the other NFL owners like supposedly like, like Dean so much yeah. and that they wanted to protect him. This must be why they must've been watching from afar. And they're like, look at all this stuff. These guys yeah. are able to make those idiots over at San Diego sign on to. <laughs> yeah. So Saint- Agree to never sue? What are, yeah. are they kidding? So the Chargers leave San Diego and we get this old stadium. And for like two years, it's just like, what are we going to do with that? Yeah. And, and the Rams leave St. Louis and they get a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to get a billion. It's like getting like 10 tobacco settlements. Right. They're just going to be like, well, we should build some parks and, and soccer. And what and, should we do with yeah, a billion fire dollars? Station. Oh, yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. And they still have the land that they were yeah. offering up. You know the 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 equivalent of the Qualcomm. Yeah. They, they they get to keep that too. Yes. So we're like, well, we've got tacos. We, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is going on? Right. All right. Thank you for letting me do that. Okay. Happy for you. That was good. 
So I'm watching uh, the baseball playoffs the other night, and I see an ad hammering Scott Peters for, he's the congressman from the coast, represents my area, and he was getting hammered for supposedly supporting or not standing up to socialist drug pricing plans that the Biden and Democrats are trying to uh, pass, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's, there's, why is this happening right now? He's not running. I mean, next year is when these things should come up. And then I get a glossy mailer from him saying, like, here's what I'm doing for drug prices. And then I see him every day in the Washington Post and New York Times. I'm like, what is going on with our congressman, Scott Peters? So I made the choice to try to figure out what is happening with him. And he finds himself in the middle of just a massive legislative sort of, what would you call it? Negotiation. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It is probably one of the most consequential legislative discussions in decades really like they want to create child tax credits that go on we, we get like 300 bucks per kid right now uh per month mm-hmm. and they want to keep that going forever they uh they want to do universal pre-k for third uh three-year-olds and four-year-olds they want to do climate change mitigation and and preparation and changes right innovations to help that they want to spend all this money, and at, and one of the things they wanted to include with that was that Medicare should be allowed to negotiate how much it spends on prescription drugs. This has been something that the, the Democrats have wanted for a long time. Mm-hmm. So that's not there's some out-of-pocket savings that that would have, but really it's about paying for the other stuff because there, there's a whole theory that we're paying so much for these drugs, if we can pay less for them, it'll help us pay for all these other things that we want, right? Right. So Scott Peters, though. A pay for. Yes. In legislative parlance. Scott Peters, though, raised up his hand and said, no, I do not want this to happen. And that has caused this enormous cascade of attention on him. And because if he doesn't support it and a couple others don't support it, it can't get through the house. It can't be part of this big package of things. And this thing stalls because a lot of people really want it, especially on the left side of things, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that he objects to is this idea in there that says that if Medicare starts to negotiate these drug prices, And the drug companies that are selling them, like insulin, stuff like that, if they don't agree to a price that's 120% or less of what other countries pay for that drug, then the government will tax that drug sales up to 95%. So basically take all the money that these companies get from making these drugs. And so he's like, look, that's not negotiation. That is like a, that's like price fixing. That's too much leverage. Now, on the other side, those guys say like, well, we're still saying you can charge up to 120% of what other countries charge or pay for the drug. Basically establishing an upper limit that we just say no going above that. Yeah. They decided like 10 years ago or so that this isn't going to work to save any money if there isn't like even more leverage right on top of it like you've got to like sort of force it or whatever and so this this uh, peter's like this isn't going to work so so he says he he's voted for this twice before by the way mm-hmm. but this time he's like no i can't support this 
and they wouldn't listen to me before when I said I wanted to have a bigger conversation about it. And now we're having that conversation because I finally have the power. And I said, no. Okay. So he's getting just loads of grief about this from people on the left. Uh, and, and then he came up with a plan to let them negotiate some of the drug prices. And now he's getting some grief from the right and from the, the biotechs and stuff who are mad about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he's right in the middle of it. So I called him up, talked to him about this, got some explanation, and posted a story on Voice San Diego. And it's had a, like a lot of a lot of feedback. So I, basically two types of feedback I wanted to talk about. One is from the left. They're like, you didn't make a big enough deal or point out enough that he has gotten so, much, so many donations from the pharmaceutical company, and that's why he's doing this. And I'd like to make a point about that. Okay. I don't... So they're, they're saying like he's, he's basically bought by these companies. But that implies that he would do something else if, if not for these donations. Right. That he would, that he would, that he, he's, he has another conscience. That he's constitutionally not on, on this path. Right. But these donations or this support has influenced him into this direction. Yeah. And I think I would probably side with you just knowing Scott Peters, like this little, area in the middle it's like that's his natural place yeah I, this, I, like with without donations i think he probably ends up there anyway yeah i think it's actually the opposite i think he gets the donations because he's there already yeah yeah this and is his it, it is it is hard to untangle the direction of causality there whether he gets those donations because he's already there because he, if he's been there for as long as you've been covering him because he's has this relationship with those would-be donor yeah cl- net, networks that that becomes very hard to to figure out where you are on that merry-go-round at any point. Yeah. But my tendency is to think what you're saying as well, which is like, this is his natural state. Yeah. This he, is where he'd like to be. And he's and he's very open about like, I want to protect, there's 68,000 jobs, thousand companies who do biotech and pharmaceutical work here. I want to protect those. And, you know, apparently being able to charge more than 120% of what other countries pay for these drugs is important for that. For those jobs. For those jobs and for those investors. That's what he says. Like, if you cap this, kind of like what the housing guys say, if you cap rents or whatever, you're going to make it impossible for them to want to, not impossible, you can make it less exciting for them to invent, uh, invest in this space, right? Yeah. I mean, 10, 10 years ago when Scott Peters was first on his way to winning election to Congress, this was a different district. And it was much more important to signal yourself as a centrist. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's like kind of a liability to, sig- to signal your centrism. But I think across all of that time, Scott Peters has, I mean, in fact, in 2012, when he ran, he was challenged on the left by Lori Saldana. He was, he was trying to emphasize at the time that he was going to be the person who was on a, on a disputed issue in this position. Exactly. Yeah. You know? And he'll say, like he said to me, he said, look, I support tw- like 11 of the 12 things they want to put in this big bill. Yeah. Like, just work with me on this one. Yeah. Now, so, I would say that to, to, the, to the opposite, to folks giving you feedback on this front, I would say that they might be right that if he's really on board for 11 of these 12 things, being unwilling to relent on that 12th yeah. could be the type of thing that maybe is influenced by... 
sort of recognizing that your reelection campaign is right around the corner and this is a major industry in a district that you are going to potentially be in a difficult spot to carry a different given district. the way, and in a different district as well. So I we you know you can't dismiss that concern no, out of hand. Matter, of course. Politics matter, right? Yeah. And that brings up the second point. So Andrea, you edited this for me and I started it out with a sentence that said like for the last nine years that he's been congressman, I, I didn't know what the point of Representative Scott Peters was. Did, did you take that to mean that I didn't think he had a point as a human? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I, I, it has been read that way. Or else I, I'd be like, uh, Scott. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's a father. He's a good. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the thing. So I said that, and that, that's what I wanted to get across. This guy has been the leader in every situation he's been in, you know, since he was a city councilman. Like they, they were, he was the first council president. Like his peers always pick him to lead. And so what I was trying to get across is like for the last nine years he's been in Congress, I didn't know what he was trying to lead, what where he would want to lead people to because he wasn't going to get an actual leadership spot. And, you know, I hadn't seen like what issues he literally wanted to lead on. Like yeah. what and and what I was saying with that piece is now I do. It's this. This is like this is everything. This is Scott Peters's moment is to craft this compromise he thinks he can get between like the industry he wants to protect and the and the push to lower drug costs. So do you do you think he is is happy to find himself in this position? Do you think he is he is he feels like well I it took 9 years but I found my place in Congress? I don't know if he would put it that way, <laughs> but I do think he's stoked about this. I think that this is his I think he's uh, he he raised his hand. He knows the consequence of it. He stuck with it. Yeah, he's getting a lot of attention, and he's held himself well in all these conversations. It does seem like he's more vulnerable now for re-election than he's ever been. Yeah, and that's what he said to me. He said, "Look, if I can get a little bit lower drug prices and protect these jobs, I feel really good about going back for re-election." So he is running against a more formidable candidate than we've seen before. Richard Bailey, the mayor of Coronado, uh, uh, you know, well-spoken, supposed to be the, the the future of the local Republican Party, and, and he's raised a ton of money already, like half a million dollars, and he's ready to go. And it could be a slightly more conservative district. Interesting. So, do you get the sense, though, that there is any real movement towards a compromise here? That this is being clo- this is on its way to being yes. figured out in a way that'll be satisfactory to basically any of the people who are really activated around it? Oh, no. It's, <laughs> it's going to be really aggravating to them. But he might get his way. So Kristen, uh, Kirsten Sinema, yeah. the senator from Arizona, who's been holding up a lot of the, the Democrats' hope on that side, mm-hmm. she endorsed his plan and apparently convinced Biden to put it into his preferred sort of final framework for what this deal, this giant deal should look like. So is his is his solution to essentially raise the cap of the uh, uh you know the from 120% to 140% no, he, is it to lower the excise tax what is th- those are gone uh, it's, it's just, just none that, of that some of the drugs in the part B side not part D it's kind of complicated but the old version and the more expensive sort of fee for service kind of drugs that they have it, those can be negotiated, but the other ones, there's no, it's the same way as it is now. So those are still, it's kind of weird. Those are still negotiated. What happens is the drug companies make a deal with these, these uh, they're called uh, 
prescription drug dealers or whatever, PDPs or something. And they make the deals with the people who actually give them to pharmacies. And so uh, the, the federal government is prohibited from sticking its nose into that system. And that's what this whole change is about. So those groups are supposed to negotiate. And there's just a lot of concern that they don't because they get other kickbacks and stuff. Okay. So it doesn't seem like there's a much of a reform coming to Medicare's ability to negotiate drug prices. Uh, a little bit, yeah, if he gets very, his way. A very marginal change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, again, I think what he, I think that's the kind of thing he's set out to do. He's literally been working for, maybe not in his mind specifically, for the last 10 years. Mm. Uh, so do you think this is going to satisfy anybody who's mad at you? No. No. No, I think there's a few people mad. It's fine. It's okay. It happens. Yeah. yeah. It's okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Our Lisa Halberstadt has been doing a lot of great work following the situation with homeless San Diegans on the streets and accommodations for them and such. And she was kind of shocked to learn that Friday or Monday, when there was a downpour in the afternoon, we kept waiting for that rain. And it never came, and then it came. And she discovered there were there were several dozen beds that had sort of been set aside for for police to use. You know, police encounter homeless individuals, and then you know offers them offer them a place to stay. The mayor had made a change to sort of make sure that they were more plugged into that system. Is that how it works, Andrea? Yeah, and it was a pretty recent change. I think it, that's what I took it as. It was a pretty recent change. Yeah, so there's this. It's called like the, it's like the central coordination system, basically. That for the service providers, police that have these very short term uh, emergency or or short term shelter beds, um, and the police were looped into that system. They were they were incorporated into that same central intake system. Um, this had been partly in response to Lisa's previous reporting that homeless people who were offered shelter beds but had no shelter beds available were still being ticketed. Right. And that that was uh, potentially in violation with a legal settlement that the city had made that you couldn't be ticketed for illegal lodging or something like that if there was no shelter bed available to you. Right. What are you supposed to do? To do if, yes. If 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 you're homeless and you need, and they say like, you shouldn't be here. And they're like, where am I supposed to go? And they, they still give you a ticket. Like that's basically criminalizing being homeless, yes, right? precisely. And so they increased the capacity of these short-term shelter beds in a, in, in a quick basis. They, they added to the existing system of shelter beds that were there. And they plugged police into it along with groups like Father Joe's Village, Alpha Project, PATH, that are the predominant service providers for these shelter services. Um. What that meant, though, is that the police were then essentially in competition with these service providers to contact people and connect them with a bed, that there was going to be some sort of zero-sum game, basically, between how many of them were able to connect with people. Um, And police had something of an advantage in there because they often begin doing their sweeps out earlier than the service providers do, Um, and yet they still... So they had these beds that were sort of spoken for. They were allotted for people that the police needed to put in beds because they otherwise can't do any sort of ticketing. And yet, even amid a storm, 
those beds were sitting empty. And that was cause for concern among the homeless providers who, for them, it's a credibility issue that, you know, they go out and talk to people and say, if you want to get off the streets right now, we have a place to, to put you and we can work from there. But you need to be able to make good on that promise. You know, your credibility is shot if you if you have that conversation with somebody and then you can't deliver. Yeah. Right. And so it was, uh, I, I think, alarming, potentially concerning uh, in, on a long term basis that that these beds had been reserved for people who who had first contact with police and yet they were empty. And that was all during a time when it was a torrential downpour. You know, and I, I was speaking to Lisa and she was kind of telling me, like, I'm learning this, I'm learning that. And I think that the thing that stood out to me the most was, well, you know, the mayor's office or the powers that be are trying to figure out, like, how can we, you know, get police more shelter beds or how can we do this? While they're figuring all this out, like, these people get to go home and they get to sleep in a bed. Yeah. Right? But the people who missed out on these shelter beds were you know, scrambling, trying to find some kind of shelter from the rain. And I think that's one thing that really uh, stood out to me when I was talking to Lisa, because I was like, it's it's frustrating, right, as a, as a resident of the city to hear that, you know, while these politicians and people are trying to figure out, like, what, what do we do? Like, how you know, because of her story that came out, mm-hmm. it's like, but at the end of the day, they got to go home and yeah. they got to sleep in a bed. The thing it feels like it reveals as well is that they don't know what they're doing. Right. And that's what's kind of scary. We've been doing this now many years, especially this sort of dance between police and, and homeless individuals on the street. And and yet it's still this awkward and the city wouldn't even talk to her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is revealing that these are this is like a set of actions around homelessness that the mayor's office is actually in control over. This is not like, you know, questions about the state of the economy and how many people are pushed into poverty, pushed down the housing ladder and eventually onto the streets or which I think is a big deal, by the way, like there, this is a national international phenomenon of lack of housing, lack of affordable housing. And it's it is kind of unfair that these city officials are stuck dealing with it. Like it's 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 a big problem with they have very small resources to deal with without question. And similarly, some long-term solution is, I think, almost certainly going to involve like a revenue measure of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that any mayor can do unilaterally, right? And then there's going to be all kinds of other uh, discrete policy actions that may be need to happen at the city council level or need to happen at the county supervisorial level. But this, what we're talking about here is sort of like on the ground, day-to-day actions that are that do happen at the direction of the mayor doesn't require the city council counting to five votes for him to make this happen. He's, and in fact, is able to act very quickly in response to negative press attention and say, okay, here's a new directive, change this. And then to not be able to see what seems to be very clear implications following directly from that. And so then have to change again Mm -hmm. and offer a new directive. That all shows not just a messy situation that's bigger than the city of San Diego, but one that we just don't have our, we don't seem to have our heads wrapped around how, what our policy response should be or what our disposition towards it is. It's much more like playing whack-a-mole. Um, it just doesn't instill much faith yeah. that we have a, a clear idea of what the problem is, what our plan to address it is going to be, 
and what the long and short term consequences of those plans are are going to be and how we deal with those. You know, it seems much more ad hoc, which, you know, like I, I, I sympathize a little bit. This is obviously a massive and complicated problem that's going to be with us for a little while. But I would like to just get a sense of control. I, I mean, he was elected on the promise that he'd provide that. That he was the one who cared about this, that he was the one that understood this, that the best practices were out there. We weren't following them and we were going to start following them. And now it seems much more like, like the little things we can't even get. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's not like it's like Mike Tyson says everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right. This is like we don't even have a plan. We're not even at the point of getting punched in the mouth and you have to adjust from your plan. It's like we're still trying to figure out what the plan is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We have, boys have been following homelessness, of course, for years. It's one of the biggest issues our region faces. And you can check all of Lisa's coverage all the time at voicesandiego.org slash homelessness. That's voicesandiego.org slash homelessness. So they're doing it. They're doing a, another tax for roads and transportation or just transportation, just transit. Yeah. I guess what, it, what the question is at this point is, what do you mean by they? Uh, Sandag. No. Okay. Definitely not. This is a citizen's initiative. Yeah. She a got, real one? Well, <laughs> <laughs> depends what you mean by a real one, right? I got, I gave her the whole, like Scott Lewis, San Diego explained, uh, uh, 101 on, on citizens initiatives the other day. I'm sorry. It was good. And then he told me, don't tell me stuff like that. Cause yeah, no, you should <laughs> really hypes me up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the, News is out. Joshua Emerson Smith reported uh, yesterday, as we record this, that uh, a citizens group uh, composed of labor groups and environmental groups. I also uh, found out later that there are some transportation, construction, infrastructure, construction companies that are part of this coalition as well, um, have announced that they're going to be filing their uh, notice to petition for a to collect signatures and then put a ballot measure up in 2022 that would fund a new transportation system for the city or for the San Diego region. Um, so this, yeah, this is happening. We're, we're back. Is it a half cent? Half cent. And like 40 years or whatever. Uh, I, I'm eager to see the language of the initiative. What, you know, whether they in previous iterations, when Sandag has been the entity that actually proposed this measure, they have capped it. They've put a, a, a short-term shelf life on it. Typically, the reason is that that it, voters like that. It yeah. pulls a little bit better to in, uh, vote for a tax increase um, that has an end date. It seems like there's a sense of accountability there to right. voters. Um, but like in Los Angeles, for instance, there's no end date. They just they say, we're raising taxes until somebody agrees to lower taxes. So maybe they go that direction. Um, it and but the the difference here, the reason this matters is the last time Sandag went to voters with a ballot measure to increase taxes, it was a half cent. Um, it was aimed at providing new transportation infrastructure countywide, so for the entire county, not just the MTS submarket, not just the NCTD submarket, not just the city of San Diego, the whole county. That's the case here as well. The difference is last time, because Sandag proposed it. It was a government instituted or initiated tax increase 
required 66.6% voter approval. This one, because it's going through the signature collection process and is being spearheaded by a group of citizens, that will lower the threshold, presumably, assuming these court cases hold up, to 50%. Now, are they going to lay out the reason it's two-thirds, too? A government can put something on the yes. ballot and raise taxes and and get it passed with just 50%. But the reason they need 667 is because they're going to lay out exactly how the money's going to be spent. So are they going to spend, are they going to do that? I anticipate that they will have a project list alongside this measure when when we finally so see So we don't know if it's going to be the petition like a purple language, line and stuff like that. Petition language hasn't been released yet. Huh. So uh, I think we get to I'm I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing that next week. Would I think be exciting? Um, but that would include I mean they they've been clear about some of the stuff that they want to include in it. And this is all happening the Sandag does have a role here in the sense that they are in the process of adopting a 50-year regional transportation plan. Now, that is doesn't involve revenue. That doesn't include tax increases. That's just the plan that's on the books. But that plan on the books goes through the environmental review process, the engineering review process. It actually builds the nuts and bolts of these projects. What they're going to basically do is use that project list that Sandag creates as a menu, and they'll pick stuff from it to put in their citizen initiative. Um, which is the downside in a way you can't just, they, they can't just concoct any project idea from thin air. That's not included in Sandy. But say, that, right? that also means the public has less chance to influence exactly what they decide they want to fund. Right. Yeah. I guess you could make that case. You could also make the case that like, look, it's not like we're just a, a, a group of, you know, labor unions and environmentalists freewheeling here. We're taking a work product from a public agency and a public process that held public meetings whose representatives were elected by voters and we're we're picking from there what to fund right um so i think you know it'll almost certainly include moving the tracks the coaster tracks that are along the delmar bluffs inland um it'll almost certainly include some part of the uh, rail system that is conceived of in the uh in the Sandag transportation plan. Yeah. So like one of the questions keeps remaining is that, that question of a purple line they want to put from Otai all the way up to what, like uh, Kearney Mesa. Kearney Mesa, yeah, basically. Now, so there's a big discussion whether that should even happen or not. Right. So it'd be interesting to see whether they include another trolley line like that or. Well, and they could, but they could also do that not as a light rail, not the current, the rail system that we know, which has the, the trains that run on our light rail and all, with all the limitations that they have in terms of speed and their ability to climb hills, um, which typically don't go underground or elevated too high. And they could say, we are doing the purple line, but it will be as part of this new rail system conceived of Fasana Crata from Sandag that'll be much more like a Los Angeles subway type system. Yeah. It runs faster and with bigger, heavier trains. Now, the price tag for what the big vision of all that was, mm -hmm. was like $200 billion. Yeah, this would be a small fraction of that. Okay, so there- I mean, they, I mean, not a small fraction, but it not $200 billion. Is that gonna? Is that a plan that's still gonna come together? A two hundred billion dollar like vision? I mean, the two hundred dollar vision, two hundred billion dollar vision includes this, probably another local tax increase in the future, like this. You know, so like two of these basically. Yeah. Plus an expected infrastructure bill, like the one that's being debated in Congress right now, plus uh, some state measures, some state funding measures, maybe even that include uh, a 
paying for uh, every mile that you travel um, to replace the gas tax, which is headed towards a lower and lower revenues as more and more people use electric vehicles and don't buy gas and don't therefore don't buy gas. So the the two hundred billion dollar plan that Sandag is talking about is what you get if you cobble together all of these sources into one big stew, right? But this would be this measure would be one ingredient in that stew. Mm. Um, so it'll it'll have a smaller project list, but it is this is how you get started building that thing, and and those those sorts of amalgamated funding sources from over fifty year timeframes, like by definition, always need to include this and other stuff as well. Mm. Mm. Uh, but I think one thing that's interesting that that we should keep our eye on about it is. Can you think of a tax measure or a citizen's initiative or a citizen's initiative tax measure that is conceived of, driven, and uh, proposed, conceived of, and driven by like the center-left coalition, the ascendant center-left coalition in local politics? No, it's been it's been that Sandag, like Chamber of Commerce, yeah. EDC center right right coalition that had then made concessions to their plans to bring some of labor that's along a, with them. That's a good point. Convention center. Yeah. All of these are, are starting almost from the right and going they're, left. They're remnants of the Sanders Faulkner. Yeah. Center right failed, city, by the way, and then brought enough liberal support along with them to give them a, a plausible or, you know, a veneer of being part of, what the city had become politically. Yeah. Whereas this is like much more from a starting point representative of where the city is right now politically. Yeah. Andrea, one of the promises with this all is that there's going to be a future in San Diego (laughs) where you can get around successfully as an adult or a student without a car. Mm -hmm. Can you picture that? I mean, it, I'm kind of like a weird person for this question because for the longest time I didn't have a car. So I was getting around like to work, you know, mm-hmm. when I was at the UT and stuff. I remember actually you, you posted when you got your first yeah, car. Yeah, yeah. very excited. Like pretty recently. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I took the trolley, I took the bus and, you know, whatever. And and as a reporter, that was fine sometimes. Like I'd have, you know, I'd know what time I'd have to get to a press conference. I would leave really early. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that I have a car, like... Yeah. I just can't imagine doing that again. And um, well, that's actually you're a very interesting case study because typically the concern with cities like San Diego, Houston, Los Angeles is that they're not like East Coast cities that have one central area surrounded by a place where people live that you can design a system where everybody goes into the center of the city in the morning and goes out to the outskirts in the afternoon that we're much more dispersed. Mm-hmm. And if that is a legitimate concern for building a transit system, your job as a reporter where you need to go all over the place all throughout the day at unpredictable times, not at, during predictable rush hours, not to predictable locations, would be like that's the type of traveler that is the hardest to plan a transit system yeah. for because you're not – you're not well served by like predictable routes with predictable times, right? You you need to move all over the place at any given time. Yeah. But you made it work. Yeah. I mean, so I made, like I, I made, it, I made it work, yeah. but I had to leave like an hour early before a press conference, which, you know. <laughs> well, your coworker across the yeah. across the hall could leave in 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And then they'd be fine and have more time for 
whatever. Yeah. I guess I read more when I was on the trolley. (laughs) Okay, so what are we looking for here? We want the exact language, what projects they're going to pull. We want to see it's a half cent, how long it goes. And then they got to get the signatures. They got to put like a million bucks in to get the signatures. Yeah. So million dollars starting point, easy. You know, it's countywide. It's going to probably be a multi-million dollar campaign. You've got to expect other things to look for. Does any sort of paid opposition materialize? Sandag in 2016, you know, went down, but that was mostly without any paid opposition. Mm -hmm. There was some opposition from IBW, the Electricians Union, and some environmental groups who are, interestingly, the key faces supporting this measure this time around. So you've actually got a measure that is championed by the most prominent opponents of the last measure. Yeah, the electrical workers want to work on the electric train. Yes. So, But you you do actually have the opponents of the 2016 measure are the proponents of this measure, Mm -hmm. just to show you how far things have come. Now, the other thing to watch... Well, the Republican Party was actually the one that put money into opposing the 2016 measure, not anyone on the left, even though those are the people who disliked it the most and got the most... Uh, press conference attention for it, but it was actually the Republican Party that spent money against it. So does somebody like Carl DeMaio get his his political action committee involved in opposing this? Does anybody else of the of that ilk do something similar? Um, or do they just use it as an opportunity to fundraise for other initiatives? Uh, it's hard to say. Yeah. So the other thing we're watching, of course, is there's a proposed tax increase for libraries and parks mm-hmm. for the city. There's a proposed tax increase to deal with stormwater and and the infrastructure needed to make those, that cleaner when it runs into the ocean. Yeah. And there's what else? Well, those are the three I oh, know. Oh, trash. Oh, trash. Yeah. And so I, I, what I would say is, a, this is around the time that you need to put together a ballot measure if you're going to be on next year. So the clock's ticking on those others. For, for one and for uh, the, another is if you believe that you can't have multiple revenue measures on the same ballot because they'll cannibalize voters. Getting out first, man. Getting out first puts you in poll position and, and could you could see those start to fall off from you know uh, people who were ready to support them now say, okay, fine, I'll get on board over here. Yeah. Hmm. Lot to watch for. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this great Voice of San Diego podcast studio. And frankly, you know, in all the land, keep up with all of our investigations and takes on local news with our newsletters. The Morning Report is our most popular, of course. And we recently brought back what we learned this week, what we learned this period of time, at least, now written by our engagement editor, Megan Wood. You can follow all of our interests and subscribe now at VOSD.org slash newsletters. That's VOSD.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrew Keats and Andrea Lopez Villafaña are our managing editors. This show is produced by Nate John, Adriana Heldes, and Megan Wood. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.